Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. (laughs) Well? Sarah and I may need couples therapy after this case. (laughs) Oh, my God. We've been fighting for like a month about this case. So we will try to bring the better parts of that into the recording. But I just have to say, on top of everything that's happened, I was skiing last weekend I went down a black diamond because I'm an idiot and I popped my knee out really badly. So that's me. Here I am. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, let's get to the case. Let's get to it and we will try to be civil. We'll try to be civil. So this is part two of the Von Bulow case. And we have really, I think we've probably over-researched this case. And between the two of us, we've read every book on it. We've watched every movie. And speaking of movies, if you haven't seen Reversal of Fortune, it's a movie about the Klaus Von Bulow case. And it is excellent. It's like one of my favorite movies, really top 10. It's amazing. And as a piece of theater about a criminal case, nothing rivals it. The characters are memorable. It's got Jeremy Irons in it, Glenn Close. And in seeing the movie again, and I've seen it 10 times, 15 times probably, and I can quote from it, and I will later on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But really looking at Glenn Close's portrayal of Sonny's life, I don't know if that was accurate. And that's part of the mystery of this case. Even after doing all this research on it, I don't think anybody can say what actually happened. Yeah, and I'm not sure we'll ever know what actually happened, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're going to present it all. And really, it is maybe Glenn Close's portrayal of this vulnerable woman was accurate, or maybe it wasn't. And maybe Klaus von Bülow, her estranged husband, tried to kill her by injecting her with insulin, or maybe he didn't. You be the judge, because depending on who you talk to, one can paint a very different picture on either side. So we left off last week talking about Klaus von Bülow's conviction. In the sensational first case that rocked Newport, von Bülow had been found guilty of putting Sonny, his very wealthy wife, in a coma from which she would never awaken. Sonny's children, Alexander and Alla von Auersberg, were thrilled with the outcome as they were convinced that von Bülow had administered the insulin that put Sonny into a vegetative state. Von Bülow was facing 30 years. Out of time and out of options, Von Bülow made an Ivy League decision that would bring into question the family's private investigation 
and the chain of evidence and really change the course of justice in this case. The movie is called Reversal of Fortune for a reason. You know, so this is part two. If you have not listened to part one, go back and listen to part one. And it really did look bleak for Von Bülow. He was facing 30 years. He had been found guilty. And then he made the really unusual choice of hiring Alan Dershowitz. And we spoke about Alan Dershowitz a little bit in the last episode. But tell us a little bit about Dershowitz. Well, Dershowitz, even now we know him as an extremely high-profile attorney. This case really kind of made him world famous. But he had, at that time, represented Patty Hearst. So he was already a very big-time attorney. And he was at Harvard. He had gone to Yale Law School. I mean, Dershowitz is, I'm going to call him a genius, Sarah. I think he deserves it, I have to say. And, and really, in this case... He had an uphill battle. What his battle was in this case was he had somebody who was convicted of attempted murder, murder, and was facing 30 years, Klaus von Bülow. The first trial had not gone well for von Bülow. And what Dershowitz had to do was really attack the evidence point by point. And it was this uphill battle. So, Sarah, earlier today, we consulted with David Cole, our legal consultant, who also went to Harvard. And he was saying, and this isn't official, this is just kind of... Kind of a ballpark. A ballpark. He was saying that it's very, very difficult to overturn a murder conviction, saying probably 90% are going to be upheld. So you're looking at 10% maybe that are going to be overturned, very small percentage. Once a decision is reached, once you've been convicted, those, those convictions usually stand. So let's go back to the first trial in a recap. What were the things that convicted Klaus von Bülow? Those are the points, the things which led to his conviction was that the prosecution was able to present evidence from a bag with a needle that was tested and had been found encrusted with insulin. The famous black bag. The famous black bag. Sunny had hypoglycemia and it was determined that she had been given insulin in the first case. They had found this black bag with a needle encrusted with insulin in Klaus's possessions. You also had evidence that he had motive because he would stand to inherit a lot of money if Sonny died rather than if he divorced her. And he also had a much younger lover in the person of Alexandra Isles and had motivation for wanting Sonny to die, essentially. You also had some pretty damning circumstantial evidence. There were two comas, and in the first coma, the maid says she basically watches Klaus stand by while Sonny is in really rough shape and doesn't call the doctor until much later, who comes in at the 11th hour and saves Sonny's life. So it's pretty damning. The first trial, that's what essentially put him away. Right. So Dershowitz is going to come in and break down that evidence. Yeah. And Dershowitz, in his own words, says, I looked at this and I was like, is this guy innocent? Is he guilty? But what Dershowitz does is he breaks down all of the evidence. And and what Dershowitz does, which is kind of unusual for an attorney, he takes sort of Harvard Law students that he's taught in the past, and he basically has a team of lawyers looking at this case. This is his MO. This is what he does. Right. He kind of groups them off. So he might put four of them in one room and three of them in another room, and it might be the black bag team. Yeah, exactly. 
in this case, what he does is he's got somebody who's an expert in like Rhode Island appellate cases. So he would have somebody mm-hmm. look at that. Then he looks at the forensic evidence. But the first Ide fix on the part of Alan Dershowitz is he's obsessed with these notes from the lawyer. Now, the lawyer, Richard Koo, was a lawyer for the family, and he met with the family shortly after Sonny's last coma. And Koo is taking notes as he's talking to the family, and he's getting their suspicious of Klaus. He's speaking with them directly after the second coma. So what did Dershowitz find out about those notes? Basically, Koo testified at the first trial, and he discussed some of those notes. And by discussing some of those notes, he opened it up to having all of those notes brought into evidence. You can't selectively. Because normally a lawyer's notes are privileged. Are privileged. When you you talk to a client, that's a work product and there's attorney-client privilege. Right. But when he was on the stand and he started discussing part of the notes, that then introduces the entirety of the notes into evidence. So that is kind of what they found. They found that he had brought them up. And once you bring them up, that brings them into evidence. Exactly. And so what's the aha moment in those notes? The aha moment in those notes is that insulin is never mentioned. Well, it's not mentioned until later on in the interview process. Well, it's not mentioned in that first meeting. So basically, there's all this talk. It's kind of like hindsight's 2020. So we have this retrospective alarm, but at the time, there really didn't seem to be this big concern about insulin because insulin, in my opinion, this is my opinion, because at this first lawyer meeting, nobody brings up insulin. Right. And it also, money seems to be a major issue and maintaining the estate. I think the family did not want Klaus to have Clarendon Court. That was one of the big things. And this is not unusual. I don't think there's anything damning about this. If you suspect somebody of trying to kill your mother, they had concerns about Cosima, who was the daughter of Mm -hmm. Klaus and Sonny. By the way, Alex and Ala, if you haven't listened to the first episode, are not Klaus's children. Alex and Ala are Sonny's children from a previous marriage to an Austrian prince. And another aha moment is they discuss settling with Klaus. And this is kind of huge, Sarah, because if they were that suspicious about him murdering their mother, why are they ready to settle with him financially? It does make it look like their main concern may have been maintaining the estate. Yeah, I think it was one of their concerns. I'm not sure we can really say it's their main concern. But in those lawyer notes, there's some, Dershowitz finds definitely some wiggle room. And Koo was very reluctant to hand over the full notes. And so, Alan, I think Dershowitz was definitely- His radar went up. So the second piece of evidence that Alan Dershowitz's team works on is also the search and seizure part. Let's rewind a little bit back. After Sonny's last final coma, Alexander goes with a private investigator back to Clarendon Court, and they find this black bag in a locked closet in amongst Klaus's things in his study. And they recover this black bag. They don't recover any insulin in this black bag, but they do recover a needle that's encrusted that comes back positive. They send, they take the bag and send it out for tests. Exactly. Privately. Privately. So this search and seizure comes under question 
And so why is that, Laura? Because there's no search warrant. They don't involve the police. Alexander takes a locksmith with him. They essentially break into Klaus's private closet and take this. And even once they get it, they also don't photograph anything. They don't film it. Once they get the black bag, they still don't turn it over to police. They take it privately to test it. So we really have a chain of evidence problem here, in my opinion. And this is what Dershowitz finds, that there's really no clear chain of evidence. And there's no way to know if this insulin, this syringe was planted because we don't have a search warrant. And they didn't call the police because they wouldn't have gotten a search warrant. Yeah, is basically the truth. And they knew this. It's one of those chicken and egg kind of things, I think. They didn't know if they had evidence until they found the evidence. It was one of these sort of evidentiary chicken and egg kind of things. Because you're right, had they called the police, the police would not have been able to get a search warrant for this. Because you can't just go on a fishing expedition. You have to have real... What I think they were afraid of is that Klaus would go and destroy this evidence. Now, there's no bottle of insulin that's found in that black bag, but there is the used needle that is tested and is found positive for insulin. Dershowitz actually goes after the testimony of Maria Schralhammer as well, because she was devastating to Klaus. Now, Maria Schralhammer is Sonny's maid, and he goes after her testimony in the first trial because the coup notes are different from how she testifies. And again, it goes back to those lawyer notes to the coup notes because her testimony is different. There's a lot of inconsistencies Mm -hmm. between the notes and what she said. And I just think there's a lot of revisionist memory here because she originally says that she finds this black bag and she reads the bottles and there's names of drugs. And then in the notes, she says there's no names of drugs. It just seems like time gave her clarity. Mm -hmm. And then she testified with a lot more clarity than we see at the original meeting with Koo and the family. So bit by bit, Dershowitz and his team really hammer away at all of these evidentiary things. And meanwhile, there is this sort of colorful character that comes onto the scene, and his name is David Marriott. And David says that, hey, I got in touch with Klaus. By the way, I used to deliver drugs to Alexander, Alexander von Auersberg. I've been to Clarendon Court. I met this sort of middle-aged woman who I also delivered these drugs to. But David Marriott ends up being kind of discredited. It's it's very murky. It's one of these sort of like too good to be true kind of stories. Even though he did have Alex's number, he had his contact information. So who knows? Like kind of I like mean, what, and I mean, know. I don't know that it'd be that unusual for a 20 something year old to have a drug dealer's number. <laughs> yeah. High profile cases are always going to kind of bring people out of the woodwork that have any association to people. Yeah. And I think there was a bit of like a shakedown on the part of Marriott, which is weird because in the movie, Dershowitz pays him a little bit of money, but I don't think normally in an investigation, you don't pay witnesses unless it's like paying them their bus fare to to, to come to court. So I do think that's a little bit odd. But all of this, Dershowitz also attacks the syringe and he basically is able to show that if there was an injection, the needle would be clean at the end and the needle has an encrustation at the end of insulin. And so he's basically 
saying that this could be planted evidence. Somebody dipped the end of the syringe into some insulin and encrusted the end. I admire Dershowitz, but honestly, that I think there could have been insulin in the tube of the insulin in the tube of the needle. I don't totally agree with that. I think it's a good theory, but honestly, if Dershowitz had wanted to plant, you know, I think if he wanted to prove that that had been injected, he would have found the experts to back that up too. I think medical experts are kind of like they're hired guns and I've seen it where you can kind of find the evidence that you want to find. That part I'll push back on a little bit. But also they resent substances to the same lab that encrusted needle had been tested and it, remember had been tested positive for insulin and they came back with false positives right. and for insulin and that kind of thing. From an evidentiary point of view, he just destroyed that first case. I think the first case was a lot about Klaus's character. And in the appeal, Dershowitz is really going granular, going after the facts and going after these facts and picking them apart. So Sarah, what happens? So Dershowitz's arguments win over the Rhode Island court and he is granted a new trial. They overturn his previous conviction. And he's been out on bail for three years. He was out on a million dollars bail, which is pretty amazing. But he's been out on bail the previous three years and living with his mistress. Andrea Reynolds. And they are living in Sonny's Manhattan apartment and apparently like giving dinners with waiters with white gloves and really living the high life. And there's even an article in Vanity Fair about them and pictures by Helmut Newton, and they're kind of living their best life. Helmut Newton actually photographed them dressed in leather. He he did. (laughs) But all jokes aside, you still have Sunny in, I believe she's in Bellevue Hospital. She is still in a vegetative coma. She is laying there. She's never going to awaken again. Mm -hmm. You know, she has the best care. She has fresh flowers every day and manicures and, but she's, she's but she's not, she has no awareness. She has no awareness, but she's in a coma. So Laura, take us through this sensational second trial of Klaus von Bülow. What are the major components in this case? Well, this case becomes much less about Klaus's character and much more about experts, Sarah. Defense calls eight medical experts, and these are impressive experts. And they are all going to come up and say that Sunday's coma was brought on really self-inflicted by a combination of alcohol, drug abuse, and poor health. The evidence from the black bag is not admitted, right? Because it was obtained really illegally. Right. And the whole chain of custody, the way it was obtained in the second trial, none of that is allowed in. So that changes things quite a lot. And the lawyer's coup's notes are brought in in their entirety. Right. I think you have a much more competent defense team. You've got a guy named Puccio, who is like sort of this pit bull Rhode Island lawyer, I believe. And you've got Dershowitz as well in the second trial in the background. The second trial is really based on what Dershowitz uncovered for the appellate trial. Right. And so things are 
just not allowed in or taken as like the word of God kind of thing in the second trial. Like in other words, the medical testimony is questioned by the defense fairly vigorously in the second trial. And Maria's testimony, which was so damning in the first trial, she really doesn't have the credibility in the second trial because so many of the things she said are discredited because they don't match the lawyer notes. Exactly. Yep. So she's put on the stand and they're able almost to impeach what she says because she said two different things. Exactly. And they're trying to get Alexandra Isles back to testify and they can't find her. She's gone to Europe. And this is sort of the final note in the second trial, which I think is interesting. The children even appeal publicly to get her back. Right, exactly. So Alexandra Isles comes back at the last minute, stepping off a private plane. Very dramatic. It's all very, very dramatic. And she testifies that Klaus had called her with Sonny's first coma. And if you remember, this is the first coma where Klaus, by Maria Schrollheimer's testimony, Klaus is laying next to Sonny while Sonny is in really, really bad shape. And finally, at the 11th hour, calls the doctor and Sonny's life is saved. But Alexandra Isles testifies that Klaus had told her, I basically knew she was dying, but when it became very critical, I couldn't go through with it. But who knows? It's a spurned lover. Right. She didn't say any of that at the first trial. Yeah. And and, then they're able to bring that up. I'm not sure she's taken all that seriously. But that was the sort of dramatic... And then Andrea, this is the dishy part. Andrea Reynolds, who is Klaus von Bülow's like lover at this point, his mistress, his main supporter, the ultimate Klaus set. She gets into this kind of media battle with Alexandra Isles and throws her under the bus. And it's all very like it's a soap you know, trashy in a funny way. So what happens? What's the result of the second trial? He's acquitted, in my opinion, rightfully so. Right. This is a very divisive case. People seem to feel either strongly one way or another. And I feel very strongly that he should have been acquitted and that the evidence just wasn't there to put somebody away for life. And there's just too much suspicion, in my opinion, that that evidence could have been planted. And you just can't allow people to have private investigations and in lieu of police coming in with a search warrant, with all the protocol that comes with collecting evidence. The ends can't justify the means. And I, I think even if you suspect somebody, you can't skip the line because you think you're right. You do have to go through all the proper channels that we all have to do. And that's to protect people who aren't Klaus von Bülow. I absolutely agree with you. I think there's a difference between being sort of legally innocent or legally not guilty and morally guilty. And I think that Klaus von Bülow had a very strong motive to get rid of. He would not be the first person who wanted to get his wealthy sort of ailing spouse out of the way so that he could move on and live his life. It was not a happy marriage. By the time Sonny went into her comas, I'm sure she was not a pleasant person to be around for him. He wanted to move on with this much younger woman. And there was a lot of money at stake. Let's not forget if Sonny had divorced Klaus and I think 
I always like to say a rich woman with a battery of lawyers is nothing to be snarked at. I think if she had divorced him, he would have ended up with a pittance, relatively speaking. If she died, he would end up with the equivalent in today's money of about $45 million. So I think that's a huge motivation. He wanted to work. He wanted to be free. I think he really did want to be free of Sonny. And I think that's a big motivating thing. I'm not sure the family's suspicion is they loved Klaus. He was really virtually their father for a long time. So what turned that love into suspicion? I kind of have to think there was something there that made them suspicious. And the maid coming forward and talking to Alexander, the son, and saying, what is this medical bag? What is this stuff? I think it's compelling. I think there's a strong circumstantial case against Klaus. Yeah, I don't think it's that strong. And I, I think suspicion is not beyond a reasonable doubt. No. Well, you know, well, that's, and, that, that's clearly shown by right, this I case. Mean, and there's just no way to ever know that that was not planted by a suspicious family. I think that they could have suspected him and thought that he did it. There's too much doubt, too much question. Laura and I are being very civil, by the way. We've had arguments where we've, <laughs> we've both had to leave the room because of this case, okay? So I don't know why we're so tame right now, I know, Laura. we're being like, very, we're being We, very, like, really, like, took off the boxing gloves on this I one. I know, we're going to stop recording and just start yelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these intriguing cases because I swear I've had dreams about this, Laura. Like, I have had dreams about, like, did he do it? Nobody was in that house with them. Nobody knows even Sonny's drug use or alcohol use is there are people who say she was like Dominic Dunn. There are people who swear up and down like ex-employees of hers that say yep. she didn't have a problem. And so who knows where the truth lies only these two people know and both Sonny and Klaus have passed away now. You know? I just think it's very important that the wealthy or people with means not be able to have a different justice system. Yes. And I think that this case really brings that point home that there can't be two sets of justice and you can't because you have money go out and hire private investigators and locksmiths and just skirt the system and not get search warrants and gather your own evidence and develop your own case. I think that's very scary. I think so too. And believe me, you're not going to get any pushback from me. With the amount of sort of like, quote, private security that wealthy people now have, you're not going to get any argument from me about that. Because for your average person who can't afford multi-million dollar investigations or defense for that matter, it does cut both ways. You've got to have a justice system that is going to attempt at least to serve everybody. Practically speaking, that's money and justice. Money does affect justice. I'm sorry. I mean, you know. Oh, absolutely. It, we, Dershowitz was also on, on OJ's case. And if OJ had just been some schlub from wherever, he would have been found guilty. Oh, absolutely. Of course, money affects it in the defense. I mean, we know that, but we do try to create somewhat of an even playing field with evidence coming in, with the rules, with the police. We yeah. try to create something. We don't allow people. And this case corrected itself, I believe, with the appeal. And I think this will always be a mystery. And I think it's one of those cases that has survived and, you know, is just reading, um, that Klaus had, of course, had a, a, a luncheon or a dinner party after he was found 
not guilty and Dershowitz attended and Norman Mailer attended. And uh, Klaus was talking about the trial and Norman Mailer grabbed his wife and said, let's go. I think he might be innocent. I thought I was here to to meet a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) But um, speaking of O.J. Simpson, since Dershowitz was on both cases, Dershowitz did suggest to both men to move to Europe, and Klaus took that advice, and he moved to London, and he lived a very low-profile life. That's true. And his daughter, Cosima, who did—this was a very divisive case for this family, by the way. Cosima took Klaus's side. And remember, Alla and Alexander absolutely were anti-Klaus. And she was disinherited for that. Right. She was disinherited from her—from Sonny's mother— for taking Klaus's side. And later, because Klaus was found not guilty, he was entitled to Sonny's money. So under a settlement later, he gave up most of that money and Cosima was reinstated. got her reinstated. Right. It's a, and now she is a countess, I think. She's a, she married an Italian yes. and he baron learned- or count or something. But I just wanted to say that This is a fascinating case. Laura and I go back and forth. We really, really would love your thoughts on what do you think about the Von Bülow case. Exactly. Murder, 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 murder.